Exodus 6, 28 to chapter 7, verse 13. We are still in that portion of Exodus where the Lord has called and has been preparing Moses. And he has already now commanded him to go back to Pharaoh and to say all the things that God has given him to say. And Moses has obeyed. He has gone. Aaron is with him. He has now become the man God wants him to be, and he is preparing to go and do what God has called him to do. And the Lord has equipped him, most recently we saw, by reminding him of the great deliverance. Even though Pharaoh was going to be stubborn, he was going to harden his heart, he wasn't going to do what the Lord told him to do, he wasn't going to listen to Moses. Nevertheless, the Lord has promised and reminded Moses and Aaron of the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he was going to remember everything that he said, that in covenant faithfulness he was going to redeem his people, that he was going to bring them into the land that he promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he was going to destroy their enemies, that he was going to again have compassion on them because he had heard their affliction. And yet we saw that the people who at one time believed when Moses first went to them, when Pharaoh has amped up the oppression, they have begun already to grumble and complain, and Moses has begun to sort of falter again in unbelief. And we're picking up right at that section in Exodus chapter 6, verse 28. There we read, on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh. That's his covenant name. I am the covenant Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it might become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. Each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there's almost not a week that goes by in my life that I am not, in some sense, astonished 
that the Lord would use sinners like us in his mission on earth. It really is quite astonishing that he would not only call us to himself, despite our depravity, that he would not only redeem us in Christ and wash us in his blood and cleanse us and renew us and give us his spirit and turn us into his people, but that further than that, he would say, I am going to make you a co-laborer with me in my service, in my mission. It's, it's an astonishing thing. I remember my dad, when I was a very little boy, saying to me, Nick, it's remarkable that God would make us co-laborers with him. I was thinking of that quote I've quoted to you in the past of Andrew Bonar when he got jealous of um, how God was using Robert Murray McShane, and he said something along the lines of, it's remarkable that God would spare me and use me at all. We should have that sort of sense when we look in Scripture because the infinite God doesn't need us. He could do everything without our help. He could eradicate every one of his enemies without ever using us in his service. And yet he chooses to call his people into his service, and he chooses from his people to set aside certain individuals to be ambassadors, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. We then, speaking about the apostles, we then are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. Um, God has so graciously raised up individuals throughout church to be his special ambassadors in ministry. And we see here in this passage, really, God highlighting that principle in the life of Moses. Remember, Moses has raised those objections constantly. Back in chapter 5, he raised five objections. And then in chapter 6, he raises another one. He says, I, I can't speak well. And then he reiterates that objection again here in verse 29, I'm sorry, 30, Moses says for now a seventh objection, seven objections. That's not arbitrary. Moses has objected in every way, shape, or form to God using him. And he has finally again reiterated that last objection, Lord, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Now, Moses, we'll see in a moment, he's faltering again because he is thinking, somehow, if I'm going to convince others of something, even of God's message, I'm going to have to have some sort of special thing about me to convince them of that. And the Lord is very quickly going to straighten that out for Moses. And he's going to do so in two ways that we're going to see tonight. I want us to consider first... God working through Moses by word, and then God working through Moses by deed. God working through Moses by word, and God working through Moses by deed. Well, it's interesting that God is going to use Moses to go to Pharaoh despite Moses' objections. And in this last objection, when Moses finally betrays that he is trusting in human gifts and abilities, by the way, something that all of us have a propensity to do by nature, we think if we're smart enough or if we're gifted enough, if we're equipped enough, that, that somehow we're the man or the woman for a task, when in fact it is God, as we've seen. Remember that statement that we read that Francis Schaeffer 
talked about that if God could use a dead piece of wood, like the rod, he can use you and he can use me. And here again, as Moses is objecting, the Lord is finally going to put Moses' objection to bay. And Moses is finally going to go, and we're not going to hear any more objections of the kind that we've heard in chapters 5 and 6. Now, the first thing that the Lord is going to tell him is that he is going to be the very mouthpiece of Moses. Notice, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now, what you may not know is in the Hebrew, and I don't like how the ESV softens this, actually. He, it actually says, I have made you God to Pharaoh. It doesn't say, I've made you like God. It says, I have made you God to Pharaoh. Now, he's not saying he's deifying Moses. He's not saying that Moses is going to become God. What he's saying is that Moses is going to be God's representative to such an extent that when Moses speaks, God is speaking. That when Moses acts, God is acting. That Moses is merely God's servant for what God is doing in God's conflict with Pharaoh. Now, we've seen that principle, and it's good to remember that. The ministry is not our ministry. Um, there's a danger, and I often catch myself when I talk to people and I say, oh, does so-and-so go to that pastor's church? Well, it's not that pastor's church. It's Jesus' church. That pastor just happens to be a minister in Christ's church. And yet there's another sense where when Paul speaks about the gospel ministry that God had entrusted to him, Paul can actually say in Galatians, because it is God speaking through him and working in him, and it's God's message, he can actually call it my gospel. Have you ever noticed that? Paul says that the preaching of my gospel. Well, Paul didn't invent it. Paul understands that the message was entrusted to him from God so that it is as much his gospel as it is God's gospel because he has become the very mouthpiece of God. And Moses here, the Lord says, is going to be made God to Pharaoh. Notice how A.W. Pink puts this. I love this. Acting in God's stead, Moses was to rule over Egypt's proud king. I love this. Listen carefully. Acting in God's stead, Moses was to rule over Egypt's proud king, commanding him what he should do, controlling him when he did wrong, and punishing him for his disobedience so that Pharaoh had to apply to Moses for the removal of the plagues. That's amazing. Let me, let me read that again. Moses was going to rule over Proud's king in God's stead because God was doing it and God was ruling so that Moses would command Pharaoh what to do, control him when he did wrong, punished him for his disobedience so that Pharaoh had to apply to Moses for the removal of the plagues. That's what God means when he says, you are going to be God to Pharaoh. Um, that also means that if God is working in us and he has called us to serve faithfully for the sake of the gospel, that wherever we go, we are representing God. Um, what, what a good reminder for us, and, and how often we forget that. When I speak to someone, either in the church 
or outside the church, I ought to be in some way, not in an authoritarian way, but in a Christ-like way representing the Jesus that redeemed me. Um, That means that we will all know our places to where God calls us in his kingdom, and none of us will be grasping for roles God hasn't given us. God is giving Moses a very large role. In fact, Moses is a type of Christ here, because remember, Jesus is going to come, and he is going to be God, and he is God, and he's going to represent God in the flesh in a way Moses didn't even do. But there's a word here for us that God calls us to represent him um, to those around us, and yet to do so in the roles in which he's called us. I was reflecting this past week on how little we hear about filling our roles according to what God calls us in the life of the church. It used to be big in the 80s and 90s to hear about spiritual gifts and where your role was. We don't hear about that a lot anymore. We need more of that because there are many people who try to usurp roles for themselves. You know, Aaron is not going to be God to Pharaoh. Moses is going to be God to Pharaoh. Aaron is going to be the prophet of God to Moses as his prophet. Um, It's very interesting. You have God arranging this situation with Moses and Aaron in the same way that he's going to arrange the rest of redemptive history, right? The Lord's going to send prophets throughout the Old Testament who are going to be his mouthpiece, but they're not going to be God to the nation the way Moses represented in a special way. They're going to be servants of Christ, aren't they? The Lord Jesus says, the wisdom of God sent you prophets and apostles. In the other gospel, he says, I sent you prophets and apostles. And the apostles in the new covenant are going to be extensions of Jesus's ministry, the way Aaron's going to be an extension of Moses's ministry. You see, the Lord is already setting up and arranging redemptive history. But I don't want us to miss that in the ministry, especially of the word, God arranges things in such a way that he has ambassadors that represent him. You know, there's a There's an interesting place in the New Testament where this really comes to the forefront. In Ephesians 2, um, uh, the Apostle Paul, speaking about Christ, um, uh, bringing about peace through the blood of his cross, he he says to the, the Ephesians, he says, and he came, speaking about Jesus, he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and to those who were near. Well, if you've ever read your Bible, Jesus never went to Ephesus. (laughs) And he certainly didn't come to America and give golden plates to Joseph Smith. But we know he did not go to Ephesus, so how can Paul say to the Christians in Ephesians, he, Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off, And to those who were near, because Paul understood when the gospel is preached, Christ is speaking and preaching. He is proclaiming his gospel through his ministers when his word and gospel are faithfully and rightly proclaimed. It is Christ who is speaking. I think here we have an intimation in God saying to Moses that you're going to be the very God to Pharaoh. And Aaron will be your prophet. He is both establishing that he is going to speak directly through his ministers, and he is also going to give prophets 
that are going to represent him throughout the rest of redemptive history. Um, now, that doesn't, let me say this as a, a side and a rabbit trail, that doesn't negate the fact that we are all priesthood, we are all priests in Christ, that every believer, we believe in the priesthood of all Christians, and he has made us kings and priests, and he has, in one sense, made every believer a prophet. Every believer is to understand his word and to speak it to others for their salvation. But there's a special sense where the Lord calls and gifts and goes with certain individuals as his very mouthpiece to the world. Um, I want to read something to you that Phil Riken said about this. He said, this is one of the many ways that Moses prepared the way for the coming of Jesus Christ, who truly is divine. God's plan for using human instruments to carry out his divine work was perfected in Jesus Christ. God's plan to use human instruments in carrying out his work was perfected, not in you and me, but in Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his being. Riken says God accomplished his great work of redemption through the man Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and was raised from the dead in a real body. But because of his divine nature, Jesus did these things not simply as a man, but also as God. But being God, by being God to Pharaoh, Moses points us to Jesus Christ, who is God to us because he is, in fact, God. Isn't that wonderful? That God gives us this picture, not just of how he uses human instruments, but how he would come in the flesh. And when Jesus spoke, God spoke. I've always loved how there's a contrast in Scripture. When the Old Testament prophets spoke, they said, thus says the Lord. But when Jesus spoke, he said, truly, truly, I say to you. He spoke as God, manifest in the flesh, exercising all authority. And in fact, his word had such authority that he could at one and the same time tell a paralytic, your sins are forgiven you. And with a word, he could say, rise up, take up your bed and walk. And it was the same power at work in exercising his authority in pronouncing forgiveness and in healing the man. He had all the divine authority invested in him in the flesh as the God-man. Well, notice that Moses and Aaron go after God tells them that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, this is a hard word. We heard this this morning. It's almost a parallel passage to what we heard this morning. Imagine if God said to you, and and Martin Luther, by the way, speculated about this in the 16th century, and he said, I think if God told me, here's the message, you're going to go, you're not going to change his heart, it's going to seem unsuccessful, and it's only going to harden his heart more, I wouldn't want to go. Luther was being brutally honest. And yet, Moses and Aaron hear God say, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Even though I'm going to multiply my signs and wonders, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Nevertheless, they go. Now, there is a word there for us. We live in a day and in a country where results are everything. And the the church can fall into that. Are we being successful enough? Is this paying off big enough dividends? If we do this, will this yield this? 
And yet here, God is saying to Moses, the greatest figure in the Old Covenant until Elijah, he is saying, I'm going to go, and you're going to be wildly unsuccessful in changing Pharaoh's heart. Now, I think at one and the same time, the Lord is reminding Moses that you have no power over the hearts of men, just as he reminds ministers that they preach the gospel and you let the chips fall where they will. That the Lord is the God of hearts, just like he's the God of Moses' mouth. Isn't that interesting? There are body parts, Phil Riken points out in this section. There's Moses' mouth, there's Pharaoh's heart, and then there's going to be God's hand. All spread out in here to show that God is sovereign over all of them. He is sovereign over the mouths of men, the hearts of men, and he is sovereign in exercising his power by his hand on the earth. We'll notice that the Lord says, Pharaoh will not listen to you. I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people of Israel, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded. And then I want you to notice verse 7. Not only did they have the obstacle of having the Lord telling them, you are going to be wildly unsuccessful in affecting Pharaoh, even though I'm going to be your mouth. In fact, it's only going to get worse for a time. They also have against them the fact that they're 80 and 83. Now, how is that against them? Well, even though we're told that they had the vitality of 40-year-olds, I don't know what that means because I'm 44 and I feel like I don't have the vitality of 40-year-olds, but even though they're told they have the vitality of a 40-year-old, um, this, this is meant to show us that by all appearance, these are not the kind of people that a God would use. These are not, these are not young, strong attractive individuals. These are not the kind of people that Israel should think that God would use. The fact that God is using them so late in their life, actually it, 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 it mirrors to an extent what he does with Abraham and Sarah, doesn't it? It shows that this is God's work and God's going to use unlikely instruments, that God doesn't judge the way men judge. Remember Jesus says men look on the outward appearance, but God judges by the heart and the Lord doesn't do things the way we think. Right? The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God is always seeking to confound the wise. Um, you know, that's a good word for us. Just about every three years or so, some celebrity is converted, and the Christian community gets all giddy because they think the whole world's going to be converted because Kanye made a profession of faith. And then a year passes and you're like, is Kanye still a Christian? I don't know. It's true. People are looking for heroes. They're looking for champions. They're looking for worldly acceptability. 80-year-old Moses and 83-year-old Aaron are not filling that gap. And yet God is going to use them mightily. And God is going to pull down the strongest nation on the planet by his mighty hand through them. And he's going to get himself the glory through them. You know, when you think about this and you look at the Savior, right? Isaiah says there's no form or loveliness that we should desire him. There's nothing about Christ that should draw people to him or make them think 
This is some mighty champion who's going to bring the kingdom of God. That's the whole point of the gospel. He doesn't look like what you and I would choose if it were up to us. Remember when the people pick a king in Israel, they pick Saul because he's head, head and foot over everybody. And he's attractive, and yet it's ruddy David that God's going to use. It's always God confounding the wise and using unlikely vessels for his glory because ultimately Christ is going to be the most unlikely and yet the perfect redeemer. Well, I want you to consider, secondly, not just God's uh, work in Moses in word, but God's work in Moses and Aaron in deed. And notice verse 8 to 13 sets out what the Lord had already told them he wanted them to do. Now, remember when he gave them the three signs, and he said, now I want you to go and show those signs to Israel. Um, And they went and they did exactly what the Lord told them, so the people of Israel would believe that God had sent them. The first of those signs was that they would throw down the rod and it would turn into a serpent, and they took it again by the tail. Now, here in this instance, the Lord knows that Pharaoh is going to demand of them a sign because his heart is wicked. By the way, wicked people who are hardened in unbelief always demand signs and evidences and proof, not because they want them, but because they want to mock the people of God. Pharaoh is not asking for this to, in any sense, really legitimate Moses and Aaron before him. He's doing it in a deriding fashion. Notice Pharaoh says in verse 9, prove yourselves by working a miracle. Prove yourselves. He doesn't say, I want to see that in fact Yahweh, who I do not know, has sent you. He said, you prove yourselves by working a miracle. And so um, the Lord told him to Aaron to take his staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it might become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord Commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Now, there is some question about whether this is the same rod that Moses had that was later called the rod of God, or whether God is using now Aaron's rod. I think it's more likely that it's the same rod, and that in whosever hand it is given, it is identified with the individual using it. It is the rod of judgment. It's going to be the rod that brings all of the plagues. It's going to be the rod that shows the power of God, even though in and of itself it doesn't look like anything. Remember, we've said that. In that sense, the rod is a picture of the cross. This is not illegitimate spiritualizing. The rod is a picture of the cross. It is an unlikely means of judgment and salvation, judgment and deliverance. God is going to use this rod. And so keeping that in mind, when the Lord goes and tells Aaron and Moses to throw this rod down, it's going to become a serpent, and then we see everything that subsequently happens, we need to think there is symbolism here. There is something God is foreshadowing, and there is something that God is signifying. Now, the second difficulty comes... Uh, from the fact that there is a specific Hebrew word for serpent that is not used in this place as it is almost everywhere else in the Old Testament. And the word that is used is sometimes translated crocodile. I know this might be the first time you've ever heard this, because I never heard this growing up, but there are theologians who actually believe it became a crocodile because in Egypt they worshipped the sun, 
and the moon and the water and the Nile and the crocodile as the guardian of the Nile. And because God is overthrowing the gods of Egypt in all of the plagues, which we're going to see, that there is an argument that has been made that he is overthrowing the god of uh, the crocodile god who oversees the river. But there are other places in the Old Testament, and a few places especially, where the word is used of venomous serpents. So that I think it's more than likely that God had Moses and Aaron throw the rod down, and it didn't just turn into a serpent, it turned into a venomous serpent. Now the question is why? Why a venomous serpent? Well, I think the simplest answer is that this conflict in this battle is between Yahweh and Satan, not between Moses and Pharaoh. Remember, Moses is representing God. Pharaoh, by way of contrast, is representing Satan. And there are many ancient Near Eastern writings that talk about how the Egyptians viewed serpents as um, evil spirits and whatnot. And so in order to battle them and in order for Pharaoh to be seen as a god, they put on his crown a serpent, a female serpent. This is very well documented that in some ways showed that he had power, that he was a serpent-like powerful figure, that he himself was a god. Um, We're going to see more of this as we look at the plagues. We can't even understand the plagues in Egypt unless we understand the idolatry of the Egyptians. And just listen carefully. In several places in the Bible, we are told explicitly that behind idols and false gods are demons. So behind every false religion are demonic influences. Why do two billion people worship the false god Allah? Why? Because there is an evil one behind false religions. Now, we have to be very careful, y'all, in a day of pluralism where we're told just to get comfortable with everything that we don't forget. Idolatry is still demonic. It was in the Old Testament. It still is in the New Testament. And God hates idolatry. And God goes full-on, gauntlet down against Pharaoh, not just because of what he's doing to his people, but because of what he represents. This is a representation of Satan's kingdom. You know, when Aaron throws the serpent down, there are theologians who believe that it's showing God's power over the evil one. Just as God told Satan, that serpent of old, that he was going to make him crawl on the, the ground and lick dust till he crushed his head, that, he, that he, would, he would overthrow him completely, that there's a picture of this in what Aaron is doing. God is intimating by symbol that he has authority and power over all things. You know, don't we see this so marvelously? One of the things I love about the Gospels, Jesus doesn't just have power over wind and waves and sickness and death, he has power over demons. When he goes and he finds the Gadarene demoniac, and this man is a picture of death and hell itself, and he goes to him and he says, who are you? And the man says, we, I am legion for we are many. And he is full of demons. And Jesus commands the demons to go out of him and enter the pigs. 
They, they have to request. Think of how powerful Jesus is. Demons have to beg Jesus to send him into pigs, which he then controls going over the cliff to destroy them. That should never cease to amaze us. You know, we live in such a scientific world, such a rational world. Um, and yet, you know what's interesting? Hollywood is enamored with the supernatural, enamored with the demonic, enamored with darkness, because we live in a world under the sway of the evil one, and yet God has promised to overthrow the evil one. Everything happening between Yahweh and Pharaoh, between Moses and Pharaoh, is Genesis 3.15 come to fruition. This is God working out and developing what he promised, that he would conquer the one who conquered man. Um, you know, it's interesting. The final thing that happens, Pharaoh sees what happens, and he says, oh, I, I like the... Uh, I like the stick to snake trick, and he gets his he gets his uh, magicians out, and and I think they really, by the power of the evil one, really and truly throw theirs down, and they become snakes. There are many people who have tried to explain this away by snake charmers and how they take the neck of the the snake and they pinch it till it passes out and it looks like a stick, and when they grab it up again, it comes back. I think they really and truly did a counterfeit supernatural miracle. Notice the language here. Pharaoh, verse 11, summoned the wise men and sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. Each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. And then I love this, y'all. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Listen to this. One old theologian said this. The symbols of their authority disappeared and that of Jehovah's servants alone remained. This makes me think when the gospel goes out into Asia in the book of Acts. Remember in Ephesus, they bring all their magic arts and all their books and they burn them. When the gospel takes root, when Christ conquers, when the gospel conquers, the symbols of Satan's authority begin to disappear and the symbols of God authority remains. Remember the Gadarene demoniac that I just mentioned to you. He was naked. He was cutting himself. He was living among the dead. And when Jesus heals him with a word, Luke says, they came and they found the man sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. The symbols of Satan's authority disappear and the symbols of God's authority appear. That ought to give us great confidence when we look at individuals and we think, you know, we may not ever verbalize this. In fact, most of us probably never do verbalize it, but sometimes inside we think we're more savable than that person or that person is somehow beyond the grasp of God's grace. We think that at times. We see people so given over. And yet the reality is when God comes to the fight, when Christ comes to the battle, when the victory that Christ has over Satan appears in the life of someone and becomes powerfully effective in their life, the symbols of the evil one's authority disappear and the symbols of God's authority are all that's left to be seen. We need a much greater confidence of that when we share the gospel with people. Why are we so afraid to share the gospel? Because we don't really believe 
It's the power of God unto salvation. You know, I was thinking about this passage and Aaron's rod being a picture in a very real sense of the cross. It's the, it's the symbol of judgment and deliverance as it's going to be in Egypt and for Israel. And, you know, when the gospel is proclaimed, the judgment of God is proclaimed and the salvation of God is made manifest, the kingdom of darkness is overthrown by the cross. Jesus disarms principalities and powers, makes a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. But this is the coolest thought. Aaron's rod swallows up the symbols of Satan's sin and death. And when the prophets want to explain what Jesus conquers on the cross, God says, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? And he says that he is going to swallow up death. It's not beautiful. Yahweh says, I'm going to swallow up death forever. I'm going to overthrow the evil one, the one who has the power of death. I'm going to defeat the sin of my people that leads to death and judgment and eternal death. And I'm going to take the sting out of death because I'm going to swallow up death by my own death and resurrection. So that when we think of the sway Satan has had over us, and we look at the cross, we realize God has done that for us already. God is going to do that for us. This God is our God. This God is our God. You know, it's easy when we look at the time in which we live, it's easy to get disheartened, to get discontent, to forget the victory that our God has already won, to try to think through human plans or schemes, think if we just find the right person to do this, if we just have this to do this, our church will do this and it'll be great. And we come to a passage like this, we realize it's all God's work, it's whoever God chooses, it's what God is doing, it's about his victory and his battle over the evil one. And the beautiful thing is he calls us to take part in that. Just like he called Moses and Aaron, he calls you and I to be faithful wherever we are, to be confident that it's his work and his battle. He wants us again this evening to be confident in that. I hope that you'll be encouraged by this word this evening to trust in this God and to meditate long on the victory that he's already given us over Satan's sin and death in the Lord Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you again for this picture, for these reminders. We thank you that though Moses was weak in speech, yet you made him as God to Pharaoh. We thank you that you raise up weak men and women who are not mighty in speech, mighty in gifts, mighty in um, social status or reputation, and yet you put us to use in your service. Lord, would you put us to use more and more in your service? Would you give us a greater confidence in the ministry of your word? Would you make us a people who are faithful even if the outcome is not what we are seeking? And would you give us a great confidence, Lord, that you have already won the victory through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that you would make us confident in the power of the gospel as we tell others about it, 
And would you encourage us, Lord, in showing us that you are destroying symbols of Satan's authority in this world and that you are manifesting more and more of your authority in your trophies of grace in the redeemed. So our God, would you do these things in us and through us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.